You can be seated. Thank you for, for entering into worship with us and uh, for joining us online. For those of you that maybe uh, joined us a little late, thanks for uh, joining us today. We're glad that you're here, and uh, we hope that you're blessed by what God says in your heart, what he's already said and what he's going to say uh, as we look into his word together. And so if you've got your Bible, um, I did put the scriptures on the screen, but if you want to see it in your own Bible today, um, I would, I would, you know, quiz us and say, hey, where are we going to read today? But then that might make some of you who maybe have not read along with us this week wonder, hey, where are we reading? But Colossians, we're in the book of Colossians. And so uh, every week we've put together a reading schedule for you. And uh, this isn't a thus saith the Lord, but as pastor of the church, I kind of felt like this is what God wanted us to do in the year 2020 was take the entire scripture, the entire book of the Bible, and go from Genesis through Revelation and talk about how it all fits together. We know that we serve a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who doesn't change. He is always the same. And yet sometimes in our theology, we act as if he's changed in, or he had to adapt his plan as he's gone along. But I don't believe God has ever adapted his plan. I think he knows the end from the beginning, and he has revealed it to us in his Word And so we have been using a book by Frank Viola called The Untold Story that kind of gives us a little bit of a background, gives us a little bit more information than we, we could get just from the reading of the scripture. We do not know all of the backstory that happens. And sometimes, even though things are in the Bible, we don't make the connection. We don't realize that in the book of Acts, this thing happened in Ephesus, and then when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, that that actually ties together, and he's actually referencing something that happened when he was there in Acts chapter 19, and we just sometimes don't make that connection because we don't read the Bible as one complete book. Sometimes we just read it as a segmented portion here and there, or you know, we just read it in our daily Bible reading plan, and so this year, I really wanted us to step back and look at that whole story of the scripture and try to begin to get an understanding of how that that looks. Now, please understand, uh, we're not going to become these great Bible experts in one year, uh, yet we're about 27 weeks in. This is part 27 today of what we've called Trust the Story. And so um, it's going to take time for us to learn to see the scripture in this way. But this is important. As we enter into maybe the last of the last days. I know that people say often, oh, we're living in the last days. Well, we've actually been living in the last days since Jesus ascended. And so as we approach the return of Christ, okay, it's going to be very important for us to know how to interpret Scripture by Scripture, how to be people of the text, how to know what God was saying when he spoke through the prophets, what he was saying when he gave the people the Torah, when he gave them the law at Mount Sinai. What was God doing? What was God intending? What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets? And how does that apply to our lives? And so uh, as we've gone through it, I've put some resources on Slack. If you uh, are not on Slack with us, I'd encourage you to be on there, um, to read along with us, to interact with us. In the body of Christ, we're to help each other grow and learn and ask questions and share insights so that all of us together get a fuller picture of who God is and what he's revealing to us in his word. So last week, we read the book of Colossians. This week, we're going to be reading the book of Philemon, and then the corresponding uh, pages from the book that you'll find in your reading guide there. They're also on Slack, and you can find them there. And so today, I titled the message, Crisis in Colossae. Now, I did steal this one from Frank Viola, and so if you read the book and the, the pages in the book that correspond to Colossians, then you'll know he titled his section Crisis in Colossae, and I thought that was a great title, so I kind of stole it from him and used it here today. So what we know, if you've been with us in the study, is Paul has made it to Rome. He's under house arrest, he's in Rome, and during his time in Rome, these next two years, he's going to write at least four letters in this very short time period. The first three letters are written boom, 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 we believe. Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to read Ephesians, or Philemon, and then we're going to read um, 
Ephesians, and then we're going to take a break for the month of October, and when we come back uh, in November, we're going to read the book of Philippians. And Paul wrote these letters from Rome to these churches. They're letters to churches, to the church in Colossae. I write these things. And then he's going to write this individual letter to a guy named Philemon. And uh, it's a short book. It's an interesting book. And uh, we're going to unpack that a little bit next week. But Philemon is a leader in the church in Colossae. Okay, then he's going to write to Ephesians. Ephesians is a big port city. Remember, Paul was there in Acts chapter 19, and uh, there was a big riot that took place. It's a wealthy city, but it's a very uh, ungodly city. A lot of worship of Diana and sexual immorality that takes place in there. And what we know is Paul interacted with the Ephesian believers a lot. But from the letter to the Colossians, we see that he's writing to Colossae, and he's actually, he says, writing to the church in Laodicea, but we don't have that letter. But he's writing that, but he hasn't been there. He doesn't have interaction with them. But he's still writing them this letter because one of his disciples named Epaphras started this church in Colossae, and he's coming to Paul and saying, Paul, we got crazy stuff going on in Colossae. I need your help. And Paul writes a letter to them. And we're going to unpack that here in just a minute. We don't know much about the city of Colossae. Colossae was destroyed by an earthquake in the first century. And because it was a small city, kind of out of the way, not an important city in the Roman Empire, it didn't get rebuilt. And right now in modern-day Turkey, there's a big grassy hill. If you search for modern-day Colossae or you search for Colossae, you'll see a picture of a big grassy hill that is where the city of Colossae was, and they have not excavated it. Um, archaeologists want to go in. They want to study. They want to learn. But um, there's, you know, tensions with the nation of Turkey, and so trying to get in there to do that research and study is always an interesting thing. And so there's not a whole lot we know about the city of Colossae. What we do know is that there's a false teaching that's prevalent there that's also prevalent in a lot of the churches. And we call it the beginnings of Gnosticism. Gnosticism sounds like a big word, um, and it actually is a lot broader than we're going to be today. But I'm gonna, I want to talk about what Gnosticism is beginning to develop as. And I'm not an expert on Gnosticism. And if you're more of an expert than me and you want to argue with some of the things I say today, great, let's have a cup of coffee and we'll talk about it. And maybe you'll teach me some things. But what I know about Gnosticism is that it stems from Plato. Okay, Plato is the Greek philosopher. And what Plato has is he's got this theory of forms. The theory of forms is that the material world is inferior. So everything you can see and touch and taste and all of the, the things that um, make up the material world that we live in is inferior to the spiritual world. And it's dark. It's evil. Okay? For Plato, there is a spiritual world out there somewhere that's perfect. And everything we see here is just a shadow of what's there. So this table is not perfect. This table is in the material world, and so it's imperfect. But out there somewhere is the perfect table. Out there somewhere is the perfect everything, the perfect virtue, the perfect life. And the goal is to distance ourselves from matter and become spiritual out there. Okay? Some of it sounds good, and some of it you may be like, well, that sounds a little bit like Christianity, and you're, you're right. But for Plato, creation is bad. So creation is the fall. Now, we know when God created the earth, he said it was good, not bad. And what happened was when mankind began to worship the created things rather than the creator and did things our own way, that's where sin enters the picture. Okay, but creation was Good. Matter is not inherently good or bad. This table is not good or bad. How I choose to use this table may be good or bad. And sometimes this Gnostic thought slips into the church because it, there's a lot of similarities between Gnosticism and Christianity. But as you study it, you'll realize there's a lot of error as well. And so for Plato, our goal is to gain knowledge. The word knowledge in Greek is gnosis. 
Gnosticism, gnosis, okay? So the more knowledge you gain, you enter into this spiritual world, you get enlightened, and then the material world no longer matters. Now, there's two really main themes of thought here, because if the material world no longer matters, what happens then is, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, because this world doesn't matter, only the spiritual world matters, and this kind of has crept into the world or into the church in a sense of, you know, when you say the sinner's prayer and you accept Jesus, you're set. Eternal security comes out of this where, you know, no matter what you do in the body now, you're in. And that's kind of a Gnostic heresy that crept into the church during the Reformation type of era and then on into where we are. But there's another strain of Gnosticism that's a little bit more like what they have in Colossae that is almost the opposite of that. And you say, well, how can Gnosticism be opposites? Well, yeah, I, I don't know, but they are. And so what you do in the body is super important. And you shouldn't partake in anything that's pleasurable on this earth. So if you eat some food and you're like, oh, that is so good, don't eat it. Because it'll separate you from God. It'll separate you from being able to be enlightened and be in the spiritual world. So we got to run from everything that's pleasurable and attain to this, this Gnostic spirituality. And so, I mean, that almost comes into Christianity too because we want to throw off the... And so that's what Paul's writing to. And I think, I, I think that's important because as we read, and all we're going to do is read some passages from Colossians, and when we run out of time, we're going to stop. So we're going to start in Colossians chapter 2. And I start in Colossians chapter 2 because um, this passage... Paul kind of does an intro, and we're going to come back to it, but then he comes here in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1, and he says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Okay, again, he hasn't been there, but he's writing to them. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. One of the things we're going to see is Paul is going to attack this idea of Gnosticism, that you attain to spirituality by gaining this knowledge and wisdom, but that's not all wrong, but the knowledge and wisdom we seek to gain has to be rooted in Christ. And the supremacy of Christ is going to be what he says. It's not you, it's Christ. It's not your ability to throw off the, your fleshly desires, it's Christ. Everything is going to come back to Christ. So he says, in order that they may know the mystery, Gnosticism, mystery of God, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. I want to alert all of us today to this truth. Every single one of us, every one of us, you listening online too, is susceptible to deception. Every one of us. And the moment we begin to think, I am not susceptible to deception, I know the truth. That pride covers our hearts, and we begin... Now, I'm, I'm not advocating that we run around and be like, oh, I'm so worried, I'm deceived. No, that's the other extreme. We need to know with a soberness that it's possible for destructive heresies that really sound good to creep in, and we're going to see it as we go through Colossians, and we've got to make sure we guard our hearts against this, and we know the scriptures, the book, the whole thing, and how it fits together so that we're not deceived. I love this. Paul says, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present in spirit. Gnosticism, body, spirit. See, he's going to do this through the entire book. I'm present with you in spirit, and that's what matters to the Gnostic, remember? So, and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm in the faith Christ is. Again, remember, Gnosticism is all about how disciplined you can be in the flesh. And Paul is saying, discipline is important. But if you take discipline too far, 
that Gnostic heresy that it's all about your level of discipline and it's no longer about what Christ has done for us, that's the error. And that's what Paul's going to unpack for us through, throughout this letter. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. I don't know if you have studied much of church history and how much of what we do right now in the American church that is based on church human tradition and how much of it is actually based on what the scripture teaches us to do. And sometimes we major in things that are not scripture saying, hey, you got to cling to these things. These are what's true and what matter. We cling to our preferences and our human traditions, and that's not a new thing. That's something that's happened all throughout church history, and that's what Paul is coming against here. So let's go back to the beginning, Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to notice that Paul's response is to contend for them. He hears about a crisis. And so what does Paul do? Paul contends, yes, contending means he wrote them a letter, he instructs them, he's teaching them. But what Paul does often in this book is he talks about prayer. Paul's initial response to the crisis in Colossae, okay, because, I mean, if Paul would have had Facebook, would he, you know, have been on there, or would he have, like, used that? Would he have used email? Would he have picked up the phone? But he, he knows he's got to write a letter, and it's going to take a while to get there. I don't think that's why Paul contended in prayer first. I think Paul understood that prayer is where we contend first. And I'll tell you, in the American church, we do not yet know how to devote ourselves to pray. And the scripture says, as the end approaches, be sober, be alert, so that you can pray. And we do just about everything but pray. So in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Okay, so faith and love. Paul's going to do this. He's going to talk about the spiritual and the material, how what we understand spiritually should affect how we live in the material world. Everything ties together. There's not this dualistic separation. Dualism just means there's a spirit world, there's a flesh world, and they don't mix. I'm here to tell you the early church believed that the spirit world and the material world were connected. And the the Gnostic teaching tried to separate the two. And we're going to see why that's destructive again as we keep going through here. In the same way, The gospel, the good news about what Christ has done for us, is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is the faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Okay, so Paul is, again, trying to correct this spirit and action type of disagreement that Gnosticism is producing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Okay, so yes, you're going to learn this wisdom and understanding and you're going to have this enlightenment through the knowledge of Christ Jesus that's going to then affect how you live in this material world. It should. It should bear fruit in every good work. It should help you grow in your knowledge of God. It should strengthen you with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. I want to stop there for just a second. 
If you don't understand what's going on in our world and what's coming in our world, Matthew chapter 24 could give you a little bit of a picture. There, Matthew 24 lays out this idea that in the last days before the coming of the Lord, there's going to be great deception. There's going to be a time when believers betray and hate one another. And the love of many, the agape that God has given us, is going to grow cold. Cold. As the church, we have better start recognizing what we're going to do when our brothers and sisters start betraying us and hating us. Because I think this moment has caught a lot of us off guard. Because we're starting to be talked about or, or misrepresented or there's starting to be betrayal and hatred right now in the body of Christ. And as believers, we're acting like we're shocked by it because we don't know the book. And we're responding to it in a way that's not kingdom. The kingdom says great endurance, patience, and joyful thanks to the Father. Now, I should be giving joyful thanks that I'm being betrayed and hated and suffering and being persecuted and all these things are happening. No, look at what he says. Why do we have endurance, patience, and joyful thanks? Because we've been qualified. We've been qualified to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. You've been qualified. What makes us qualified? That. Repenting and putting faith in what Christ has done for us qualifies us in the kingdom of light. Gnosticism will teach uh, you got to attain to knowledge. It's not our ability to attain to knowledge. In fact, we wouldn't have attained to any knowledge had he not come and revealed it to us. So my ability to retain knowledge doesn't qualify me because I can't. The only knowledge I have is because he's revealed it to me. Now, I still have to pursue, I still have to obey, but it's not because of me, it's because of him. Everything comes from him. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And what we're going to see as we keep reading in Colossians is that our qualification is only in Christ Jesus, Period. It's not our self-discipline. It's not our study. It's not our own enlightenment. It's only what Christ has done for us that brings us qualification to stand before God. Period. And he's talking about being brought into this kingdom. He doesn't say God will one day bring us into the kingdom. Not future tense. He has already brought us into it. And this dualism, this Gnosticism has crept into the church and we, we have been mistaken for years to believe that our goal is just heaven. We can just get to heaven. I just, some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. Our calling is not to just hang on till we get to the sweet by and by. Our calling is to be carriers of light, kingdom carriers of light right now, affecting change in this present darkness. It's to bring the kingdom everywhere we go. We've already been transferred into the kingdom of light. It's not just going to happen one day. No, I'm not saying that there's not going to be a fuller revelation when Christ shows up on earth and we see him with our eyes. Absolutely. But guess what? The Bible actually doesn't ever say you and I are going to go up into heaven to be with him forever, but he is going to bring heaven down to us where we will dwell with him forever. Interesting. Isn't that weird how the dualism that has crept in has caught us up where, oh, if I could just hang on until Jesus comes. You're not called to hang on until Jesus comes. You're called to right now be carriers of the kingdom where we are. And Paul goes on and he says to them, devote yourselves to prayer. See, the only way this is going to work for us if you and I learn how to abide in him, to devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And Paul even says, and pray for us too. Paul is not to the place where he thinks he doesn't need prayers from people. He's like, I need you to pray for me so that I can proclaim this message so that the message has an open door for which I'm in, in change. So I proclaim it clearly. I beg you, 
If you don't need, if you don't need to pray for you, pray for me every single day. Because I need it. Because we live in a time where every word you're, you say in a sermon gets dissected more than it ever has. And the pressure to do this or that or support this or support that or to, to do this. Uh, I'll take your prayers. See, you and I have to learn what it is to come into the throne of God to receive mercy and find grace. We've talked a lot over the last several weeks about this idea that we've got to learn how to love our enemies and do good for, to those who hate us. And lest we slip into Gnosticism and think that somehow I have to self-discipline myself to love my enemies and do good, there's no amount of self-discipline that's going to help me. What I need is to devote myself to prayer and get into the throne room where I am eyeball to eyeball with my Father who loves me the same way that he loves those who betray and hate me. And I begin to get his heart for them. That's how we do it. And if you just try to do it, oh, I'm just going to grip my teeth and love that person. <laughs> that is not going to work. Because it's not my effort. It's what Christ has done for us. And we have to reject this idea of the separation of the spirit world and the physical world. Because the early church didn't buy into it. Today, there's this theology that's referred to as kingdom now theology. And what they teach is that the world's just going to get better and better and better and better, and the churches help, we help it get better and better and better, and then Jesus comes. That's not what the early church believed. But there's another idea where everything's just getting worse and worse. Pastor, everything's just getting worse and worse. It's getting worse and worse. I'm going to tell you what. There is nothing new under the sun. You don't believe me? Let's have coffee and let me share with you some common practices of the Roman Empire and the things that they did to children in the Roman Empire. And we'll, I'll share them with you to show you there's nothing new under the sun. I'll show you the sexual immorality and idolatry practices that were taking place in many of the nations in biblical times. And I'll show you there's nothing new under the sun. The, the heart of mankind has been wicked from the inception of sin into the world, okay? It's desperately wicked. What, because we, we have this idea that it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and then it's all just going to blow up. And we, when we think that way, we don't live as redeemers now. We don't live as God's stewards over creation. Why should we steward creation? It's just all going to disappear. Do you know that Christ is coming back to reign here for a thousand years? So he expects us to have dominion over the earth. He expects us, the way the early church believed, God was going to redeem the cosmos the same way that he resurrected and redeemed Christ. Now, that doesn't mean it's just going to get better and better and better, but it doesn't mean it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. It just means that this has been the human condition, but Christ came and invaded that moment and brought us now into the kingdom of the son he loves, and we live like it. We're not living for the great escape. We're living to redeem our world now. So then Paul goes on in Colossians chapter 1, and he basically full force goes after this idea that creation is bad. And so he attacks that Gnostic idea, and this is what he says, starting in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image, the flesh, of the invisible God. See that? He's bringing them together. The firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created. <laughs> it can't be bad. In him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth. Spiritual world, material world. Visible, invisible. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed 
on the cross. See, there is this idea in Gnosticism that Jesus really wasn't in the flesh. Because again, because flesh is bad. Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh. He was just a spirit when he was here on earth. Paul's like, no, no, no. He was in flesh on the earth, and it was good. And God used his death to bring a reconciliation between things on earth, things in heaven. Doesn't matter. There's no dualism. He's brought it together, and everything is held together by him. When Jesus said, it is accomplished on the cross, he meant it. He meant it. And I think in the church, too often, we downplay what has been accomplished already. We live reacting to things that we see in this world, and we're all over the place. Instead of being grounded in what he's already done, we don't have to live in panic mode, fear, frustration, anger. I mean, we can, depending on where we set our hearts and minds. Colossians chapter 3, we're getting there too early. Okay, so once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds. Do you know in Hebrews, it talks about the one thing that the sacrifices couldn't do. They could cover their sin for the year and for their mistakes, but it couldn't cleanse their conscience. But the blood of Jesus Christ, it can cleanse the guilty conscience You're no longer separated from God even in your mind because of your evil behavior. But he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. It's our connection to Christ that qualifies us, period. From the moment we accept it, from the moment we yield to it, from the moment we apply his sacrifice to our life, we are qualified. From that moment, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Jesus, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. That's some good stuff right there. So then he goes on and he the prayer that were the passage that we read from Colossians chapter 2 earlier, but then we pick up here in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as your Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Not overflowing with grumbling and complaining. Not overflowing with criticism and and garbage. Overflowing with thankfulness. See, if you live like you've already been brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, you'll overflow with thankfulness. But if you live like you're not in the kingdom and the kingdom is out there somewhere and you got to go out there somewhere to attain it and someone's stopping you from getting it, then you're not going to overflow with thankfulness. You're going to overflow with poison. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. But you're like, well, Pastor Tom, why why don't I live like it? Well, we're right there. He is the head over every power and authority. (laughs) Every power and authority. Kingdoms of the world, kingdoms of the air, don't matter. They are already under his feet. Let's live like it. He is the head. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. You catch this? Your flesh was put off by Christ. Our flesh, be careful how I say this, but it sounds bad, but our flesh is not put off by our own self-discipline. It's put off by Christ. Now, we have to live like that. 
We have to live like he's put it off. But it's been put off by what he's done for us. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So our goal as believers right now is to live united with Christ every single day, every single moment. When you're at work, when you're at play, when you're watching TV, when you're reading a book, when whatever you're doing in your life this week, your goal is to be united with Christ. Your goal is not just live a good enough life so you get to heaven when you die. Your goal is not just to hang on and not do anything wrong until Jesus comes so you can get to heaven. Your goal is to live united with Christ, and if you make that your goal, I guarantee you, you will make it to heaven. But if you just try to make it to heaven, you might miss out. Because your, your focus is on where you're going and not where you are. And we have to live in that moment in Christ Jesus. Look at what Paul goes on to say. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, tri over, triumphing over them by the cross. He did this through the death of Jesus. Now, please listen carefully and don't think I'm teaching heresy. Sin does not send people to hell today. Because the sin of the entire world, the, the legal charge, the legal indebtedness has been taken care of. Look at what John 3 says. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. See, the, the charge is taken away. But until you repent and come into the kingdom, the charge still stands. So what sends people to hell is the rejection of Christ Jesus and what he's done for us. That's how we gain entrance to the kingdom. Yeah, I know it's still technically sin, but he's already taken it away. In Colossians chapter 2, continuing, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. <laughs> Here's the word again. These are just a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is in Christ. Now, a lot of people look at this and say, see, we shouldn't participate in the religious festivals or the Sabbath. None of that matters anymore. That is not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is, do not let people tell you that your qualification is determined by whether or not you keep these festivals. Because in Colossae, the Jews who were keeping the Torah, as we've talked about, they continued to do it, not to earn their salvation, but to live as the people of God, putting him on display in the world. But their qualification didn't come from keeping them. And other people were telling them, no, that's just flesh stuff. You don't have to worry about that stuff. What you do in the flesh doesn't matter. It does matter because its reality is found in Christ. If you look at Christ, he taught his disciples how everything in the Torah pointed to him. Every feast, every remembrance, everything pointed to him. He is the reality of them. So if they want to continue to practice them for, for that reason, continue to stay in them. In fact, Paul Paul tells the Jews to continue to practice them. Paul continued to practice them. Gentiles, you don't have to do it. Your qualification is in Christ, not being Jewish. So then he goes on and he addresses the next part. These people who delight in false humility and the worship of angels, don't let them disqualify you. So people in Colossae are going into this great detail about these angelic visions that they're having. And if, if you're not having angelic visions, you do not have the enlightenment that I have. I have special enlightenment that I have received from my angelic vision. 
That's what's happening in Colossae. But now what the church today has done, some of them look at this and say, see, this is why visions, they don't happen anymore. False. The whole scripture does not teach that visions don't happen anymore. In fact, the scripture teaches us do not treat prophecies and visions with contempt, but test everything by the scripture. The whole thing. See, sometimes we could have this angelic vision and we can find one obscure scripture and twist it to say, see, my vision is correct. But if your scripture doesn't line up with the story God has been telling from beginning to end, be careful. And certainly don't let anyone disqualify you or qualify you whether you're having these visions or not. Put them in their proper perspective, Paul says. Then he goes on and says, since you died to Christ, with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teaching. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining self-indulgence. Now, some people look at this and say, see, we, we don't keep the law anymore because don't handle, don't take. He's not talking about the Torah, the law. How do I know that? Because he says these come from human commands. And the scripture teaches us that the Torah comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so he's, he's not saying that. He's talking about this idea that if you participate in anything that's good or, you know, if some Christians don't know how to relax. Let me give you the word of the Lord today. God is a God of celebration and feasting. Amen. He loves to party. He does. Look at Nehemiah. The people were weeping because they, they weren't keeping the law. And what does Nehemiah say? Stop weeping. This is a day of celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles is about celebrating. I mean, you're like, oh, Pastor Tom, but there's so much evil in our world. How can we celebrate? There has always been evil in our world. And yet God commanded them when there was evil in the world, when there was all of this this horrendous stuff happening in idolatry and people going into a Christless eternity, he still gave them a feast that said, you have to learn how to celebrate. You have to learn that I'm good even in the midst of evil. It can't be all celebration, but it can't be all rules and regulation and fasting and sackcloth and ashes either. We cannot forget this. Paul is not saying discipline is not important. He's not saying don't put into practice the, the putting off of your flesh. No. In fact, that's where he's going next. As soon as we turn the page into Colossians chapter 3, the apostle Paul goes in and he says this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, when he says things above, he's not talking about just think about heaven when you die. He's saying think about the realities of the kingdom. In Ephesians, he's going to tell us Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and where are you? Seated with him. Right now, in heavenly places. How? I'm right here. You know, I don't know. Those are the mysteries of the things that are hidden in Christ. But the reality is you and I are hidden with him right now. And we don't have time to go into the rest of Colossians chapter 3. But what's he say next? Put off sexual immorality. Put off impurity. Put off lust. Put off evil desires. Put off greed. Why? Because you've already, Christ has already cut it off of you. Now don't practice it. Don't give in to it. Anywhere that your flesh goes against the Spirit, put it off. Put it off. Because that's not who you are anymore. He also gives us this list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying, if you've 
ever had a conversation that says, hey, have you heard of what so-and-so did? What's going on with them? Slander. That's not kingdom. If you want to know what's going on with them, you go to them. And I have Christians tell me all the time, oh, I, I could never go to them. No, they're not going to hear me. Then contend for them in prayer, not in gossip and slander. And don't use social media to hide behind either. I don't care if they're a public figure or not a public figure. We don't slander in the body of Christ. We don't cut down anyone. We honor. Whether you like them or not doesn't matter. And then Paul tells us what we should put on. He tells us we should put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Remember when I talked about what are we going to do when people betray and hate us? We better get that figured out. Because it's going to happen. We can't live in the body of Christ and not get a grievance somewhere against each other. If you're looking to belong to a church where you never have a grievance against the pastor or deacon or another person in that body, Restoration Church is not for you. In fact, there isn't one for you. Because every church you go to, you're going to have the opportunity for a grievance. And however Christ treated you, that's how you handle that grievance. Colossians chapter 4, remember when we talked about devoting ourselves to prayer? At the end of that, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer everyone. <clears throat> how do we learn to live like that? Being devoted to prayer. Learning to live in our union with Christ. So if your life is producing fruit of what we find in Colossians chapter 3, the beginning, if it's producing sexual immorality, if it's producing anger, if it's producing rage, you got to take a step back and say, hey, hey, I'm acting contrary to who I am in him. That's not okay. Now, growing up, I was taught that Jesus is coming back and you better not practice anything. If you have an argument with your wife and Jesus comes back, you're not going. Can I tell you, that's false. But there's also a deception, the deceitfulness of sin that can harden our hearts to the point where we think because we're not instantly zapped by God, that, hey, it must, God must be okay with me practicing this. If it's on that list, he is not okay with you practicing it. I mean, it's just true. And so we have to take great pains to get those things out of our lives and put on what we're to be clothed with in Christ. So I hope I've given you something from the book of Colossians. I'd challenge you this. Philemon is like 20 verses. Not a lot of reading for this week. Go back and read Colossians again. Read it with this understanding. Read it in this context and begin to ask the Holy Spirit, show me how to live this out in my life. I don't want to live where it's my own self-righteousness that I think qualifies me. I don't want to live where I'm trying my best to live. No, I want, him. I want to be in union with Him. I want to live out that union with Him. Every single day, every single conversation, every single activity of my life in union with him. And I guarantee you, you start living like that, you're going to bring the kingdom where you go. You're going to bring the kingdom into conversa conversations. You're going to bring the kingdom to Facebook too. In fact, you might even leave it. And so, Father, give us grace. God, we need your grace. God, we need your mercy today. We recognize right now Man, if we look at this list, God, even this morning, there may be things in our lives that have come out of our mouths, that have come off of our fingertips as we've typed. God, that have been prevalent in conversation. Maybe they've just been thoughts that we've entertained today. God, we don't want to live that way. God, we don't want to live in self-righteousness. We don't want to live trying to be qualified in our own abilities, our own quest for knowledge. We don't want to be ever learning and never able to come to knowledge of the truth. 
God, we want to be in union with Christ. Our qualification is in Him. So God, help us. Help us to turn from our lives. Help us to turn from the pursuits of the kingdoms of this world and to pursue you, to pursue our union with you. And God, to live as kingdom carriers of the light. If you're here today or you're watching online, and maybe you have gone to church a long time, maybe you one time said a sinner's prayer and asked Jesus to forgive you and come into your heart, but the way that the apostles approached this topic was they said that when you recognize that every single one of us, there's no way we could live up to the standard of God's righteousness. We can't. Every single one of us falls short of it. But Christ took that punishment on our behalf. And when we recognize that and we acknowledge that before God and we repent, and repent means I turn from the way I used to live and I turn and I walk in the kingdom. No longer living on the kingdom of the earth, the kingdom of the world. No longer living to satisfy my own fleshly desires when those fleshly desires go against the character of God. I repent. I go the other direction. And I put confidence in what Christ has done for me. And then I live in that union. And when things in my life my temper, my words, my attitudes, when they do not reflect who he is, I admit to him that they have no place in my life. I confess it, he forgives it, and he empowers me to be changed. He empowers me to be transformed. I don't excuse it. I don't say it doesn't matter. I recognize it, and I turn from it. And if you've never done that, you've never repented, and you've never put confidence in Christ in that way, do it today. Right where you are, do it. God, I need you. I have broken your law. I, don't, I can't live up to the standard of your righteousness, but I want to come into your kingdom today. I want you to be my king today. And so I'm turning from my life and I'm surrendering to you. I'm making you my Lord and I want to live out of that union that I have with Christ Jesus. And realize the moment you do that today, you come into a perfected state with Christ Jesus. And you're going to have the strength to live that out as you maintain that union with him. And so, Father, I pray for grace today for everyone in this room and everyone who's watching online. God, to be able to take that step. God, to be able to turn from our lives and to put our confidence wholly in you. God, enable us today to be carriers of the kingdom. God, to no longer be alienated from you in our minds. God, we want to set our hearts, we want to set our minds on the realities of the kingdom where Christ is seated right beside you. God, where we are seated with him. And we want to distribute the kingdom in our workplaces. We want to distribute the kingdom in our schools. We want to distribute the kingdom in our neighborhoods. We want to distribute the kingdom on social media. We want want to be God restorers of this world in the same way that Jesus restored them. God, help us to be carriers of that in our lives today and in this week ahead. God, give us grace to understand this letter to the church in Colossae. Give us grace to be able to understand it and apply it to our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to thank you guys for being with us, for joining us online. And uh, we dismiss from back.